So have you ever seen a deal that looked too good to be true? Just something was off there. Maybe you were flipping through the channels and came across a commercial, and the commercial says that for only $100, you can get a 75-inch 4K Ultra HD TV. Only $100. But then you notice next to the 100, there's a little star, a little, little asterisk. And you freeze the live TV or you take a screenshot with your smartphone and, and you zoom in and, and you read that fine print. And the fine print says this. 75-inch 4K Ultra HD TV will be available for $100 only under the following conditions. Number one, you make a deposit of $2,200 first. Number two, a 1977 Jeep CJ7 is donated to our company. Number three, Lloyd Dobler of Bellevue, Washington, contacts our company, trades in his boombox for an iPad and a Bose SoundLink. Doesn't sound like those three things are going to happen, right? You're probably not going to get your $100 deal. But let's just say that Lloyd Dobler does trade in his boombox. And you send your $100 to the company. And 46 weeks later, you get a small, medium-sized box that comes, and, and you open it up, and there's a letter inside, and the letter says this, our warehouse ran out of 75-inch TVs before we received your payment. Our only approved supplier has gone out of business, so please accept this 7.5-inch portable TV and this collection of at least 10 Roy Orbison albums. If that has ever happened to you, then you might be the victim of false advertising. Or maybe you're at the burger joint, and you walk up, and, and there's this poster promoting their gigantor bacon cheeseburger. Man, it's amazing, you know? You're looking at it. It looks like it has like 22 pieces of, of applewood smoked bacon on it, and there's like four cheeses just melting down the side. I mean, it, it's amazing. And so you walk up to the counter, and, and you wipe off your drool, and, and you order one. And they bring it out to you. You go, you sit down, and you open up the wrapper. And what you find is this little shrivel of a burger and some cold nacho cheese sauce and then a, a little smatter and a bacon bits on top of that thing. Yeah. If that's ever happened to you, <laughs> and it has happened to me at least once, then you might be the victim of false advertising. Now, most of us have all seen some measure of false advertising, right? Or maybe just questionable advertising, you know, something that just doesn't sound right. But the truth of the matter is, you know, if you get a TV that's a little smaller or, or if you get some bacon bits and nacho cheese sauce, it's not great, but it's really not going to ruin your life, right? But what if there was some false advertising that you bought that actually damaged your soul? What if you devoted yourself to, to something, to an idea that actually had a negative impact on your eternity? That's when truth in advertising would, would matter a little bit, right? And if we're talking about our soul and, and damage to our soul, and if we're talking about eternity, then, then we would probably naturally connect that to someone's religious beliefs. So maybe we might ask the question this way. How do you know that your religion is not just a bunch of false advertising? Well, we're going to try to answer that question at least in, in one way today by looking at Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 25. Now large crowds were going along with him. Jesus was the cool, new, hip guy on the speaking circuit. 
Everybody was flocking to Jesus. The crowds were growing. This was his moment. This was his time to to seize the opportunity to, to do something, to capitalize on his popularity. This was his time that he could start his own church. Man, he could, he could have a great sanctuary, a, a big booming sanctuary with, with gorgeous white columns and a, and a big family life center out back and, and educational buildings with, with great classrooms and they could have inspiring services and they could have ministry programs for, for all ages in the church. Or he could go by the old mall in Jerusalem and he could convert it into this you know, retro worship arena and they could have exciting services with all the latest technologies and, and just a, a constant blanket of, of lightning fast social media all over the place. This was his time. This was his moment. The people were rallying. The people were crowding around. So what does Jesus do? Well, he turns to the crowd and he gives them a visionary message about his future ministry. And what's his message? Here's his message. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Huh. That doesn't sound quite like a visionary message, right? I mean, Jesus says, my vision and my dream for my future church is to have it full of people who hate their moms and hate their dads and hate their parents and hate their kids and hate their friends and, and they even hate themselves. So come on, who, who's with me? Who's with me? What's he doing? Jesus does not understand marketing at all, right? This is his time. This is mo- he should be evangelizing. He should be recruiting he should be trying to grow his church. But, but it seems like he's doing the opposite. In fact, with a statement like this, it's almost like he's telling people, don't follow me. He's discouraging people from following him. And in a way, that's exactly what he's doing. Why? Well, we're going to unpack this from, from a few different angles. First, let's be clear about what he's not saying. Okay? Jesus is not saying that it is your Christian duty to hate your parents and hate your spouse and hate your in-laws and hate your kids, okay? That's not what he's saying. It sounds like a very strange valentine that Jesus is handing out, I agree. But this word hate in the original ancient language here, it means to love less or prefer less. To love less, to prefer less. So what Jesus is doing is he's given a statement of commitment. He's given a statement of devotion. He says, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be my disciple, then you must love me first and most. Yes, love and honor and serve your husband. Yes, love and honor and serve your wife. And love and honor and serve your parents and your kids and your friends. And yes, love and honor and serve yourself. But... Love Jesus in such a way that there is a measure, a preference of love that is more, that is higher, that is deeper than any love that you would give to anyone else. And why? Why should you do that? Well, Jesus tells us, right? He says if you don't do that, then you can't be his disciple. I mean, that, that's an amazingly clear sentence, right? 
Jesus is saying, look, if you do not love God first and most and with everything that you have, you cannot be a Christian. Man, that sounds a little, a little harsh, right? Listen, people can say whatever they want to about Jesus, but at the end of the day, they can't say this. They can't say that Jesus was a liar. Now, Jesus didn't believe in asterisks. Jesus did not believe in false advertising. Jesus was a straight shooter. He always said it clear. But again, at first glance, this just, it feels awkward, right? I mean, he, he uses the word hate. I mean, this is confusing. I mean, Jesus, isn't he the one who said, love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself? What about this admonition from the Bible? 1 John verse, chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So is the Bible talking out of both sides of its mouth? I mean, is Jesus at the very least, least kind of giving some questionable advertising here about what it means to follow him? I mean, why didn't he just say, you know, if you're going to follow me, you need to love God first and most. Why didn't he say that? Why did, why did he say hate? Why did he use the word hate? Here's why. Because you cannot add Jesus to your life. That's not the call. To follow after Jesus is not just adding something on to your life. Following Jesus is not just joining the church. It's not just being baptized. Following Jesus is when your heart and your mind and your soul come to the realization that without Jesus you are spiritually dead. You are lost and without God. You are lost and without hope in this world. You are lost and without hope in the world to come. Following Jesus means you haven't just heard some sermons from a preacher about Jesus. Following Jesus means this, that by the Spirit of God, you have heard the voice of the Son of God say to your own personal soul, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Following Jesus means that by the Spirit of God, you have heard the voice of the Son of God say to your own personal soul, come to me, all who are weary, all who are burdened, all who are broken, all who are worn out, and I will give you rest. And following Jesus means that by the Spirit of God, your very own soul says to the Son of God, I repent Please, Jesus, I come to you. Please have mercy on me. That's why Jesus uses strong language. But, but why should we believe him? Why should we give that kind of plea, that kind of devotion, that kind of commitment to carpenter? I mean, a carpenter from a nothing, no-name town who didn't even live past the age of 33. Why would we give that kind of devotion to him? Why would we love Jesus more than we love our parents? Why would we love Jesus more than we love our spouses? Why would we love Jesus more than we love our kids? Why would we love Jesus more than we love ourselves? Why? Paul said it this way, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been killed with Christ. 
I've died with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I live now by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because he loved me and he gave himself up for me. For me. Jeff Thomas writes, your husband did not humble himself to the death of the cross because of his love for you, but Jesus did. Your wife did not taste damnation for you, but Jesus did. One of your parents did not willingly remain in the anathema of sin-hating God to deliver you from hell. Only Jesus could, and only Jesus did do that. This is who he is. So do we kind of catch the drift a little more now of, of why he uses strong language? I mean, do we see that Jesus can't just use cute, catchy slogans that you can put on the church sign? Because if he did, then the FTC might come after him for false advertising. So Jesus was was clear. He didn't use soft language. He didn't use false advertising. He was clear. And what if he wasn't clear? What if Jesus said something like this? Anyone who comes after me must hate watching baseball on TV or he cannot be my disciple. Anyone who comes after me must hate shopping at retail makeup stores or he cannot be my disciple. Those kind of don't have a whole lot of punch to them, right? But what if we up the ante? What if if we give a little more attention to these questions and raise the level a little bit? What if it's more like this? Anyone who comes to me and doesn't hate getting overcharged on their federal or state income taxes, can't be my disciple. Anyone who who comes to me and they don't hate being mugged on vacation, they cannot be my disciple. Anyone who comes to me and, and doesn't hate children who get, a child getting a terminal disease, if you don't hate that, you can't be my disciple. I mean, We get that, right? Those have a little more punch. But you know what? Those are natural. I mean, hopefully those those would be things we naturally might have a little, little hatred toward. But see, the call to Jesus is not a natural call. It's a supernatural call. So because it's a supernatural call, that means it will challenge our natural way of thinking. Pastor Mike Andrews puts it this way. If God asked me to, Could I leave my parents and go to the mission field? Or could I accept having my child go? If God were to take my wife or child in death, would I get bitter and quit God? He goes on. If my family were to threaten to disown me because of my faith in Christ, would I renounce my faith? Again, say what you want about Jesus, but he's not a liar. And when the crowds started building, when when more people started coming, Jesus loved them. He was merciful to them. He was compassionate toward them, and he told them the truth. He said, look, if you're just here for the free bread, you cannot be my disciple. If you're just here because you like the preaching style or the music style or the style of the building or or because you were greeted well by the visitors or because your kids had a great time at church, if those are your reasons, you can't be my disciple. 
Jesus does not want the crowd to be confused. He doesn't. It's, it's loving. It's merciful. It's compassionate. He's drawing a line in the sand. He wants them to really understand what it means to follow after him. In essence, he's kind of saying this, look, if you come after me, your marriage may not turn out great. In fact, you come after me, your husband may forbid you to go to church. If you come after me, your wife, she may be really cool and and she may be helpful. She may be a great church member, but she may not love me and she may not love you. If you come after me, your kids may hate you. They may mock you. They may reject you. They may want to have nothing to do with you. If you come after me, you may have to go to a different college than you thought you were going to. Or maybe you may not go to college at all. Or maybe you thought you were just going to go get a job and and go work at the plant, but I'm going to call you to go to college. If you come after me, your career may suffer. If you come after me, I might call you to go to a foreign land where no one has ever heard of me. And the first time that you stand up to share the gospel, they run you through with a spear and take your life. Jesus didn't believe in asterisks. Jesus didn't believe in false advertising, but he did believe and he does believe in allegiance. He believes in allegiance, and that's why he says things so strongly. He doesn't want anyone to be fooled with a false commitment. Paul was writing to Titus about having weak leaders in the church, and this is what he wrote. They profess to know God but by their deeds, they deny him. So they profess to be a disciple, but then what they say and what they do and how they act and how they think, it cancels out their profession. They deny their profession because they're sinfully overcommitted to loving the people and the things of this world. Brandon Clements is a pastor over at Midtown Fellowship, one of the pastors here in the Columbia area. And I've shared these thoughts from him before, and I think they're timely again. He writes, If your nation was at war with another nation, regardless of the outcome, messengers would be sent back with the news. This makes sense, right? I mean, a messenger would come back, and they're either going to have good news or bad news, but they're going to come back with a message about what's happening in the war. And so let's just start with the bad news. He writes, Run for your life. Certain death is coming with the other nation's army because our army is lying dead on the battlefield. They are coming to kill and pillage us all. That's bad news. That's seriously bad news. That's not the news that you would want to get. But what if the messenger came back with good news? And it sounded like this. Gospel. The battle has been won. The blood of our soldiers has purchased your freedom. You won't be killed. You are free. Relax and enjoy the victory that's been won for you. That's good news. That would be a good message from the messenger. He goes on to say this. Those villagers would sit there on pins and needles awaiting the fate of their very existence, holding their families tight. Right? I mean, we can get that moment, right? We can feel that moment. Their whole life was about to be defined by what message came back. So let's say the message that comes back is is the good message. Clements writes on. 
Hear it smack your ears with the relief of a lifetime. Gospel, gospel, good news. The blood of another has purchased your freedom. Breathe easy. Death is no longer your fate. That's good news. And then he asked two questions. Does your soul feel relief at the sound of Jesus' substitutionary life and death? His righteousness imputed to you. Does your soul feel relief? And then he asks a second question. Does your heart heave with a whew, when you hear of the freedom from religious pressure and performance purchased for you by the blood of God's Son? How does your heart respond to the gospel? When you hear the gospel, when you hear Jesus say that the gospel demands that you love him first and most and more than any other person on the planet. When you hear that, do you in your heart puff up with sentimental pride and say, who does he think he is? Or, or does your heart melt with joy and say, Jesus, wherever you Go, I will follow because you purchased my freedom and death is no longer my fate. See, by using this strong language, what Jesus is doing and turning to the crowd that day is simply saying this, have you guys really heard my message? Have you really heard the gospel? Please don't ignore the fact that Jesus used the word hate on purpose. It's not an accident. It wasn't a slip of the tongue. Jesus used the word on purpose. But please also don't ignore the fact that Jesus is not building his kingdom on hate. If somebody comes up to you and says, yeah, took one of them spiritual gift tests down at the church. I scored pretty high on hate. So I'm going to go out this week and be really hateful for the glory of God. That's, that's not how it works. On another day, Jesus said this, John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So it's by love, not by hate, that you will prove yourself to be a disciple, a, a learner, a follower of Jesus. It's, it's by love. And the true love of Jesus will say, I want you to understand what it means to follow me. No false advertising. I want you to be clear about your commitment and your devotion. See, the gospel, it forces us to evaluate and realign and filter all of our relationships through our relationship with Jesus. The gospel, it, it forces us to embrace that if we claim to follow Jesus, but we love him very little or we don't love him at all, we actually are making the people in our lives suffer. We said it this way last week. The best way to love your family is to love Jesus first and most. The best way to love your family is to love Jesus first and most. Because here's the deal. 
If you love your family more than you love Jesus, that is mean. It's mean. It's awful. Here's why. If you love them more than you love Jesus, that means that you might be tempted to listen to them more than you listen to Jesus, which means that the truth of Jesus is not coming through you to get to their life. And what your family needs the most is the truth of Jesus. What they need the most is Jesus. So don't love them more than him because then you are actually hurting them. In a way, it's almost like you're hindering them from what they need the most. But somebody might say, well, it's okay if I listen to them if they're a Christian, right? I mean, God wants us to, to listen to the advice of other Christians, right? Yes, definitely. But, but also remember this. The most well-meaning Christian on the planet is not Jesus. And the greatest gospel-preaching preacher on the planet is not Jesus. So we love and we serve and we honor and we enjoy and we embrace our families and our friends, and even ourselves. But we love, and we serve, and we honor, and we embrace, and we enjoy Jesus first and most and more. That that's the call of the gospel. And, and why would we do that? What, what's in it for us? Why should we love Jesus with that kind of devotion? Well, this is what Jesus said about himself. John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through me. So what does that have to do with your life right now? I love what Jeff Thomas says. When I know my ignorance, Jesus says, I am the truth. When I am lost, he says, I am the way. When I feel dead, Been there this week? Been there this month, this year? When I feel dead, Jesus says to my soul, I am your life because I am the life. There is no one else I can turn to. There is no other name I can plead. There's no other name. There's, there's no other name. There's no other name by which men and women and boys and girls must be saved. There's no other name by which you can be safe. There's no other name by which you can be secure. There's no other name by which you can be satisfied. James Smith has been with Jesus for 156 years. But before he went to see him, he knew he, who he was going to see. This is what he writes. Jesus is the infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, gracious, just, holy, and unchangeable I am. You can't put that on your resume. <laughs> we can't write that on the back of a fellowship hall chair for you, okay? That's just, just him. It's just, that's just true of him. He goes on. Angels worship him. Devils obey him. Saints love him, and sinners will bow to him. He is above all. He possesses all. He will judge all. Nothing can escape his eye. None can fly out of his hand. He is exalted above all and remains king forever. 
And he says this. His love is an infinite perfection. He loves with all of the majesty of God. He is all loving and he is all together lovely. There, there is no other. There's no other. There's no husband, there's no wife, there's no mom, there's no dad, there's no child, there's no grandchild. There is no other name like this name. There's no other. There's no other Savior. And listen, there is no greater love. None. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus.